Hello, and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. We now continue with Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Chapter 102, A Bower in the Arsacides. Hitherto, in descriptively treating of the sperm whale, I have chiefly dwelt upon the marvels of his outer aspect, or separately and in detail upon some few interior structural features. But to a large and thorough sweeping comprehension of him, it behooves me now to unbutton him still further, and, untagging the points of his hose, unbuckling his garters, and casting loose the hooks and eyes of the joints of his innermost bones, set him before you in his ultimatum that is to say, in his unconditional skeleton. But how now, Ishmael? How is it that you, a mere oarsman in the fishery, pretend to know aught about the subterranean parts of the whale? Did erudite Stubb, mounted upon your capstan, deliver lectures on the anatomy of the cetacea, and by help of the windlass hold up a specimen rib for exhibition? Explain thyself, Ishmael. Can you land a full-grown whale on your deck for examination as a cook dishes a roast pig? Surely not. A veritable witness have you hitherto been, Ishmael, but have a care how you seize the privilege of Jonah alone, the privilege of discoursing upon the joists and beams, the rafters, ridgepoles, sleepers, and underpinnings making up the framework of Leviathan. And be like of the tallow vats, dairy rooms, butteries, and cheeseries in his bowels? I confess that since Jonah, few whalemen have penetrated very far beneath the skin of the adult whale. Nevertheless, I have been blessed with an opportunity to dissect him in miniature. In a ship I belong to, a small cub sperm whale was once bodily hoisted to the deck for his poke or bag to make sheaths for the barbs of the harpoons and for the heads of the lances. Think you I let that chance go without using my boat hatchet and jackknife and breaking the seal and reading all the contents of that young cub? And as for my exact knowledge of the bones of the Leviathan in their gigantic, full-grown development, for that rare knowledge I am indebted to my late royal friend Tranquo, king of Tranque one of the arsicides. For being at Tronquay years ago, when attached to the trading ship Day of Algiers, I was invited to spend part of the Arsidian holidays with that lord of Tronquay at his retirement palm villa at Pupella, a seaside glen not very far distant from what our sailors called Bamboo Town, his capital. Among many other fine qualities, my royal friend Tranquo, being gifted with a devout love for all matters of barbaric virtue, had brought together in Pupella whatever rare things the more ingenious of his people could invent, chiefly carved woods of wonderful devices, chiseled shells, inlaid spears, costly paddles, aromatic canoes, and all these distributed among whatever natural wonders the wonder-freighted, tribute-rendering waves had cast upon his shores. Chief among these latter was a great sperm whale, 
which, after an unusually long-ranging gale, had been found dead and stranded, with his head against a coconut tree, whose plumage, like tufted droopings, seemed his verdant jet. When the vast body had at last been stripped of its fathom-deep enfoldings, and the bones become dust-dry in the sun, then the skeleton was carefully transported up the Pupella Glen, where a grand temple of lordly palms now sheltered it. The ribs were hung with trophies, the vertebrae were carved with Arsidian annals in strange hieroglyphics. In the skull, the priest kept up an unextinguished aromatic flame, so that the mystic head again sent forth its vapory spout, while, suspended from a bough, the terrific lower jaw vibrated over all the devotees, like the hair-hung sword that so affrighted Damocles. It was a wondrous sight. The wood was green as mosses of the icy glen. The trees stood high and haughty, feeling their living sap. The industrious earth beneath was as a weaver's loom with a gorgeous carpet on it, whereof the ground vine tendrils formed the warp and woof and the living flowers the figures. All the trees with all their laden branches, all the shrubs and ferns and grasses, the message-carrying air, all these unceasingly were active. Through the lacings of the leaves, the great sun seemed a flying shuttle weaving the unwearied verdure. O busy weaver, unseen weaver, pause, one word. Whither flows the fabric? What palace may it deck? Where for all these ceaseless toilings? Speak, weaver, stay thy hand. But one single word with thee, nay, the shuttle flies, the figures float from forth the loom, the freshet rushing carpet forever slides away. The weaver god, he weaves, and by that weaving is he deafened, that he hears no mortal voice, and by that humming we too who look on the loom are deafened. And only when we escape it shall we hear the thousand voices that speak through it. For even so it is in all material factories. The spoken words that are inaudible among the flying spindles, those same words are plainly heard without the walls, bursting from the opened casements. Thereby have villainies been detected. Ah, mortal, then be heedful, for so... In all this din of the great world's loom, thy subtlest thinkings may be overheard afar. Now, amid the green, lifeless loom of that Arcidian wood, the great white worshipped skeleton lay lounging, a gigantic idler. Yet, as the ever-woven verdant warp and woof intermixed and hummed around him, the mighty idler seemed the cunning weaver himself all woven with the vines, every month assuming greater, fresher verdure, but himself a skeleton. Life folded death, death trellished life. The grim god wived with youthful life and begat him curly-headed glories. Now, when with royal tranquo I visited this wondrous whale and saw the skull and altar, and the artificial smoke ascending from where the real jet had issued, I marveled that the king should regard a chapel as an object of virtu. He laughed. 
But more I marveled that the priest should swear that smoky jet of his was genuine. To and fro I paced before this skeleton, brushed the vines aside, broke through the ribs, and with a ball of arsicidian twine, wandered, eddied long amidst its many winding, shaded colonnades and arbors. But soon my line was out, and following it back, I emerged from the opening where I entered. I saw no living thing within, not was there but bones. Cutting me a green measuring rod, I once more dived within the skeleton. From there, arrow slit in the skull, the priest perceived me taking the altitude of the final rib. How now, they shouted, darst thou measure this, our God? That's for us. Ay, priests, well, how long do ye make him then? But hereupon a fierce contest rose among them concerning feet and inches. They cracked each other's sconces with their yardsticks. The great skull echoed, and seizing that lucky chance, I quickly concluded my own measurements. These ad measurements I now propose to set before you. But first be it recorded that, in this manner, I am not free to utter any fancied measurement I please, because there are skeleton authorities you can refer to to test my accuracy. There is a Leviathonic Museum, they tell me, in Hull, England, one of the whaling ports of that country, where they have some fine specimens of finbacks and other whales. Likewise, I have heard that in the Museum of Manchester, in New Hampshire, they have what the proprietors call the only perfect specimen of a Greenland or river whale in the United States. Moreover, at a place in Yorkshire, England, Burton Constable by name, a certain Sir Clifford Constable, has in his possession the skeleton of a sperm whale, but of moderate size by no means of the full-grown magnitude of my friend King Tranquo's. In both cases, the stranded whales to which these two skeletons belonged were originally claimed by their proprietors upon similar grounds. King Tranquo, seizing his because he wanted it, and Sir Clifford because he was lord of the seigneuries of those parts. Sir Clifford's whale has been articulated throughout, so that, like a great chest of drawers, you can open and shut him in all his bony cavities, spread out his ribs like a gigantic fan, and swing all day upon his lower jaw. Locks are to be put upon some of his trap doors and shutters, and a footman will show round future visitors with a bunch of keys at his side. Sir Clifford thinks of charging two pence for a peep at the whispering gallery in the spinal column. Threepence to hear the echo in the hollow of his cerebellum, and sixpence for the unrivaled view from his forehead. The skeleton dimensions I shall now proceed to set down are copied verbatim from my right arm, where I had them tattooed. As in my wild wanderings at that period, there was no other secure way of preserving such valuable statistics. But as I was crowded for space, and wished the other parts of my body to remain a blank page for a poem I was then composing, at least what untattooed parts might remain, 
I did not trouble myself with the odd inches. Nor, indeed, should inches at all enter into a congenial admeasurement of the whale. Chapter 103. Measurement of the Whale's Skeleton. In the first place, I wish to lay before you a particular plain statement touching the living bulk of this Leviathan, whose skeleton we are briefly to exhibit. Such a statement may prove useful here. According to a careful calculation I have made, and which I partly base upon Captain Scoresby's estimate of 70 tons for the largest-sized Greenland whale of 60 feet in length, according to my careful calculation, I say a sperm whale of the largest magnitude between 85 and 95 feet in length and something less than 40 feet in its fullest circumference, such a whale will weigh at least 90 tons. So that, reckoning 13 men to a ton, he would considerably outweigh the combined population of a whole village of 1,100 inhabitants. Think you not, then, that brains, like yoked cattle, should be put to this leviathan? to make him at all budge to any landsman's imagination? Having already in various ways put before you his skull, spout hole, jaw, teeth, tail, forehead, fins, and divers other parts, I shall now simply point out what is most interesting in the general bulk of his unobstructed bones. But as the colossal skull embraces so very large a proportion of the entire extent of the skeleton, as it is by far the most complicated part, and as nothing is to be repeated concerning it in this chapter, you must not fail to carry it in your mind, or under your arm, as we proceed, otherwise you will not gain a complete notion of the general structure we are about to view. In length, The sperm whale skeleton at Tronche measured 72 feet, so that when fully invested and extended in life, he must have been 90 feet long, for in the whale, the skeleton loses about one-fifth in length compared with the living body. Of this 72 feet, his skull and jaw comprise some 20 feet, leaving some 50 feet of plain backbone. Attached to his backbone, for something less than a third of its length, was the mighty circular basket of ribs which once enclosed his vitals. To me, this vast ivory rib chest, with the long, unrelieved spine extending far away from it in a straight line, not a little resembled the hull of a great ship new laid upon the stocks, when only some twenty of her naked bow ribs are inserted, and the keel is otherwise, for the time, but a long, disconnected timber. The ribs were ten on a side. The first, to begin from the neck, was nearly six feet long. The second, third, and fourth were each successively longer, till you came to the climax of the fifth, or one of the middle ribs, which measured eight feet and some inches. From that part, the remaining ribs diminished, till the tenth and last only spanned five feet and some inches. In general thickness, they all bore a seemly correspondence to their length. The middle ribs were the most arched. In some of the arsicides, 
They are used for beams where to lay footpath bridges over small streams. In considering these ribs, I could not but be struck anew with the circumference, so variously repeated in this book, that the skeleton of the whale is by no means the mold of his invested form. The largest of the trunche ribs, one of the middle ones, occupied that part of the fish which in life is greatest in depth. Now the greatest depth of the invested body of this particular whale must have been at least 16 feet, whereas the corresponding rib measured but little more than 8 feet, so that this rib only conveyed half of the true notion of the living magnitude of that part. Besides, for some way, where I now saw but a naked spine, all that had been once wrapped round with tons of added bulk and flesh, muscle, blood, and bowels. Still more, for the ample fins, I here saw but a few disordered joints, and in place of the weighty and majestic but boneless flukes, an utter blank. How vain and foolish then, thought I, for timid, untraveled man to try to comprehend aright this wondrous whale by merely poring over his dead, attenuated skeleton stretched in this peaceful wood. No, only in the heart of quickest perils, only when within the eddyings of his angry flukes, only on the profound, unbounded sea can the fully invested whale be truly and livingly found out. But the spine... For that, the best way we consider it is with a crane to pile its bones high up on end. No speedy enterprise. But now it's done. It looks much like Pompey's pillar. There are forty and odd vertebrae in all, which in the skeleton are not locked together. They mostly lie like the great knobbed blocks on a gothic spire, forming solid courses of heavy masonry. The largest, a middle one, is in width something less than three feet, and in depth more than four. The smallest, where the spine tapers away into the tail, is only two inches in width, and looks something like a white billiard ball. I was told that there were still smaller ones, but they had been lost by some little cannibal urchins, the priest's children, who had stolen them to play marbles with. Thus we see how that the spine of even the hugest of living things tapers off at last into simple child's play. Chapter 104. The Fossil Whale From his mighty bulk, the whale affords a most congenial theme whereon to enlarge, amplify, and generally expatiate. Would you... You could not compress him. By good rights, he should only be treated of in imperial folio. Not to tell over again his furlongs from spiracle to tail and the yards he measures about the waist, only think of the gigantic involutions of his intestines, where they lie in him like great cables and hawsers coiled away in the subterranean orlop deck of a line of battleships. Since I have undertaken to manhandle this leviathan, it behooves me to approve myself omnisciently exhaustive in the enterprise, 
not overlooking the minutest seminal germs of his blood and spinning him out to the uttermost coil of his bowels. Having already described him in most of his present habitatory and anatomical peculiarities, it now remains to magnify him in an archaeological, fossiliferous, and antediluvian point of view. Applied to any other creature than the Leviathan, to an ant or a flea, such portly terms might justly be deemed unwarrantably grandiloquent. But when Leviathan is the text, the case is altered. Fain am I to stagger to this emprise under the weightiest words of the dictionary. And here be it said that whenever it has been convenient to consult one in the course of these dissertations, I have invariably used a huge quarto edition of Johnson, expressly purchased for that purpose, because that famous lexicographer's uncommon personal bulk more fitted him to compile a lexicon to be used by a whale author like me. One often hears of writers that rise and swell with their subject, though it may seem but an ordinary one. How, then, with me, writing of this Leviathan? Unconsciously, my chirography expands into placard capitals. Give me a condor's quill! Give me Vesuvius's crater for an inkstand! Friends, hold my arms, for in the mere act of penning my thoughts of this Leviathan, they weary me and make me faint with their outreaching comprehensiveness of sweep, as if to include the whole circle of the sciences and all the generations of whales and men and mastodons, past, present, and to come, with all the revolving panoramas of empire on earth and throughout the whole universe, not excluding its suburbs. Such and so magnifying is the virtue of a large and liberal theme, we expand to its bulk. To produce a mighty book, you must choose a mighty theme. No great and enduring volume can ever be written on the flea, though many there be who have tried it. Ere entering upon the subject of fossil whales, I present my credentials as a geologist by stating that in my miscellaneous time I have been a stonemason, and also a great digger of ditches, canals and wells, wine vaults, cellars, and cisterns of all sorts. Likewise, by way of preliminary, I desire to remind the reader that while in the earlier geological strata there are found the fossils of monsters now almost completely extinct, the subsequent relics discovered in what are called the tertiary formations seem the connecting or at any rate intercepted links between the antichronical creatures and those whose remote posterity are said to have entered the ark. All the fossil whales hitherto discovered belong to the tertiary period, which is the last preceding the superficial formations. And though none of them precisely answer to any known species of the present time, they are yet sufficiently akin to them in general respects to justify their taking rank as cetacean fossils. Detached broken fossils of pre-Adamite whales, fragments of their bones and skeletons, have within 30 years past, at various intervals, been found at the base of the Alps, in Lombardy, 
in France, in England, in Scotland, and in the states of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Among the more curious of such remains is part of a skull, which in the year 1779 was disinterred in the Rue Dauphine in Paris, a short street opening almost directly upon the Palace of the Tuileries, and bones disinterred in excavating the great docks of Antwerp in Napoleon's time. Cuvier pronounced these fragments to have belonged to some utterly unknown leviathonic species. But by far the most wonderful of all cetacean relics was the almost complete vast skeleton of an extinct monster found in the year 1842 on the plantation of Judge Krieg in Alabama. The awe-stricken, credulous slaves in the vicinity took it for the bones of one of the fallen angels. The Alabama doctors declared it a huge reptile and bestowed upon it the name Basilosaurus. But some specimen bones of it being taken across the sea to Owen, the English anatomist, it turned out that this alleged reptile was a whale, though of a departed species. A significant illustration of the fact, again and again repeated in this book, that the skeleton of the whale furnishes but little clue to the shape of his fully invested body. So Owen rechristened the monster Zuglodon, and in his paper read before the London Geological Society, pronounced it, in substance, one of the most extraordinary creatures which the mutations of the globe have blotted out of existence. When I stand among these mighty leviathan skeletons, skulls, tusks, jaws, ribs, and vertebrae, all characterized by partial resemblances to the existing breeds of sea monsters, but at the same time bearing, on the other hand, similar affinities to the annihilated antichronical leviathons, their incalculable seniors, I am, by a flood, borne back to that wondrous period, ere time itself can be said to have begun, for time began with man. Here Saturn's gray chaos rolls over me, and I obtain dim, shuddering glimpses into those polar eternities, when wedged bastions of ice pressed hard upon what are now the tropics, and in all the 25,000 miles of this world's circumference, not an inhabitable hand's breadth of land was visible. Then the whole world was the whales, and king of creation, he left his wake along the present lines of the Andes and the Himalayas. Who can show a pedigree like Leviathan? Ahab's harpoon had shed older blood than the pharaohs. Methuselah seems a schoolboy. I look round to shake hands with Shem. I am horror-struck at this anti-mosaic, unsourced existence of the unspeakable terrors of the whale, which, having been before all time, must needs exist after all humane ages are over. But not alone has this Leviathan left his pre-Adamite traces in the stereotype plates of nature, and in limestone and marl bequeathed his ancient bust, but upon Egyptian tablets, whose antiquity seems to claim for them an almost fossiliferous character, we find the unmistakable print of his fin. In an apartment of the great temple of Dendera, some fifty years ago, there was discovered upon the granite ceiling a sculptured and painted planisphere, 
abounding in centaurs, griffins, and dolphins, similar to the grotesque figures on the celestial globe of the moderns. Gliding among them, old Leviathan swam as of yore. Was there swimming in that planisphere centuries before Solomon was cradled? Nor must there be omitted another strange attestation of the antiquity of the whale in his own osseous post-Diluvian reality as set down by the venerable John Leo, the old Barbary traveler. Not far from the seaside they have a temple, the rafters and beams of which are made of whale bones, for whales of a monstrous size are oftentimes cast up dead upon that shore. The common people imagine that by a secret power bestowed by God upon the temple, no whale can pass it without immediate death. But the truth of the matter is that on either side of the temple, there are rocks that shoot two miles into the sea and wound the whales when they light upon them. They keep a whale's rib of an incredible length for a miracle, which lying upon the ground with its convex part uppermost makes an arch, the head of which cannot be reached by a man upon a camel's back. This rib, says John Leo, is said to have lain there a hundred years before I saw it. Their historians affirm that a prophet who prophesied of Mahomet came from this temple, and some do not stand to assert that the prophet Jonas was cast forth by the whale at the base of the temple. In this Afric temple of the whale I leave you, reader, and if you be an Antucketer and a whaleman, you will silently worship there. Chapter 105. Does the whale's magnitude diminish? Will he perish? Inasmuch, then, as this Leviathan comes floundering down upon us from the headwaters of the eternities, it may be fitly inquired whether in the long course of his generations he has not degenerated from the original bulk of his sires. But upon investigation we find that not only are the whales of the present day superior in magnitude to those whose fossil remains are found in the tertiary system, embracing a distinct geological period prior to man, but of the whales found in that tertiary system, those belonging to its latter formations exceed in size of those of its earlier ones. Of all the pre-Adamite whales yet exhumed, by far the largest is the Alabama one mentioned in the last chapter, and that was less than 70 feet in length in the skeleton. Whereas we have already seen that the tape measure gives 72 feet for the skeleton of a large-sized modern whale, and I have heard, on whalemen's authority, that sperm whales have been captured near 100 feet long at the time of capture. But it may not be that while the whales of the present hour are an advance in magnitude upon those of all previous geological periods, may it not be that since Adam's time they have degenerated? Assuredly, we must conclude so, if we are to credit the accounts of such gentlemen as Pliny and the ancient naturalists generally. For Pliny tells us of whales that embraced acres of living bulk, and Aldrovandus, of others which measured 800 feet in length, 
rope walks and tames tunnels of whales, and even in the days of Banks and Solander, Cook's naturalists, we find a Danish member of the Academy of Sciences setting down certain Iceland whales, Raiden Sisker, or wrinkled bellies, at 120 yards, that is 360 feet. And Lesapid, the French naturalist, in his elaborate history of whales, in the very beginning of his work, page 3, sets down the right whale at 100 meters, 328 feet. And this work was published so late as A.D. 1825. But will any whaleman believe these stories? No. The whale of today is as big as his ancestors in Pliny's time. And if ever I go where Pliny is, I, a whaleman, more than he was, will make bold to tell him so. Because I cannot understand how it is that while the Egyptian mummies that were buried thousands of years before even Pliny was born did not measure so much in their coffins as a modern Kentuckian in his socks, and while the cattle and other animals sculptured on the oldest Egyptian and Nineveh tablets by the relative proportions in which they are drawn just as plainly prove that the high-bred, stall-fed, prized cattle of Smithfield not only equal, but far exceed in magnitude the fattest of Pharaoh's fat kine. In the face of all this, I will not admit that of all animals the whale alone should have degenerated. Still another inquiry remains, one often agitated by the more recondite Nantucketers. Whether owing to the almost omniscient lookouts at the mastheads of whale ships, now penetrating even through Bering Straits, and into the remotest secret drawers and lockers of the world, and the thousand harpoons and lances darted along all continental coasts, the moot point is whether Leviathan can long endure so wide a chase and so remorseless a havoc, whether he must not at last be exterminated from the waters, and the last whale, like the last man, smoke his last pipe, and then himself evaporate in the final puff. Comparing the humped herds of whales with the humped herds of buffalo, which, not forty years ago, overspread by tens of thousands the prairies of Illinois and Missouri, and shook their iron manes and scowled with their thunder-clotted brows upon the sites of populous river capitals, where now the polite broker sells you land at a dollar an inch, in such a comparison an irresistible argument would seem furnished to show that the hunted whale cannot now escape speedy extinction. But you must look at this matter in every light. Though so short a period ago, not a good lifetime, the census of the buffalo in Illinois exceeded the census of men now in London. And though at the present day not one horn or hoof of them remains in all that region, and though the cause of this wondrous extermination was the spear of man, Yet the far different nature of the whale hunt peremptorily forbids so inglorious an end to the Leviathan. Forty men in one ship hunting the sperm whales for forty-eight months think they have done extremely well, and thank God, if at last they carry home the oil of forty fish. Whereas in the days of the old Canadian and Indian hunters and trappers of the West, when the far West, 
in whose sunset sun still rise, was a wilderness and a virgin, the same number of moccasined men for the same number of months mounted on horse instead of in sailing ships, would have slain not forty, but forty thousand and more buffaloes, a fact that, if need were, could be statistically stated. Nor considered aright, does it seem any argument in favor of the gradual extinction of the sperm whale, for example, that in former years, the latter part of the last century, say, these leviathons, in small pods, were encountered much oftener than at present, and, in consequence, the voyages were not so prolonged, and were also much more remunerative. Because, as has been elsewhere noticed, those whales, influenced by some views to safety, now swim the seas in immense caravans, so that to a large degree the scattered solitaries, yokes and pods and schools of other days, are now aggregated into vast but widely separated unfrequent armies. That is all. And equally fallacious seems the conceit that because the so-called whalebone whales no longer haunt many grounds in former years abounding with them, hence that species also is declining. For they are only being driven from promontory to cape, and if one coast is no longer enlivened with their jets, then, be sure, some other and remoter strand has been very recently startled by the unfamiliar spectacle. Furthermore, concerning these last-mentioned leviathons, they have two firm fortresses, which, in all human probability, will forever remain impregnable. And as upon the invasion of their valleys, the frosty Swiss have retreated to their mountains, so, hunted from the savannas and glades of the Middle Seas, the whalebone whales can at last resort to their polar citadels, and diving under the ultimate glassy barriers and walls there, come up among icy fields and flows, and in a charmed circle of everlasting December, bid defiance to all pursuit from man. But as perhaps fifty of these whalebone whales are harpooned for one catch-a-lot, some philosophers of the forecastle have concluded that this positive havoc has already very seriously diminished their battalions. But though for some time past a number of these whales, not less than 13,000, have been annually slain on the Norwest coast by the Americans alone, Yet there are considerations which render even this circumstance of little or no account as an opposing argument in this matter. Natural as it is to be somewhat incredulous concerning the populousness of the more enormous creatures of the globe, yet what shall we say to Harto, the historian of Goa, when he tells us that at one hunting the king of Siam took four thousand elephants? that in those regions elephants are numerous as droves of cattle in the temperate climes. And there seems no reason to doubt that if these elephants, which have now been hunted for thousands of years by Semiranis, by Porus, by Hannibal, and by all the successive monarchs of the East, if they still survive there in great numbers, much more may the great whale outlast all hunting, since he has a pasture to expatiate in which is precisely twice as large as all Asia, both Americas, Europe, and Africa, 
New Holland, and all the isles of the sea combined. Moreover, we are to consider that from the presumed great longevity of Wales, they're probably attaining the age of a century and more. Therefore, at any one period of time, several distinct adult generations must be contemporary. And what that is, we may soon gain some idea of by imagining all the graveyards, cemeteries, and family vaults of creation yielding up the live bodies of all men, women, and children who were alive 75 years ago, and adding this countless host to the present human population of the globe. Wherefore, for all these things, we account the whale immortal in his species, however perishable in his individuality. He swam the seas before the continents broke water. He once swam over the site of the Tuileries and Windsor Castle and the Kremlin. In Noah's flood, he despised Noah's ark. And if ever the world is to be again flooded, like the Netherlands, to kill off its rats, then the eternal whale will still survive. And rearing upon the topmost crest of the equatorial flood, spout his froth defiance to the skies. Chapter 106 Ahab's leg. The precipitating manner in which Captain Ahab had quitted the Samuel Enderby of London had not been unattended with some small violence to his own person. He had lighted with such energy upon a thwart of his boat that his ivory leg had received a half-splintering shock. And when, after gaining his own deck and his own pivot hole there, he so vehemently wheeled round with an urgent command to the steersman. It was, as ever, something about his not steering inflexibly enough. Then the already shaken ivory received such an additional twist and wrench that though it still remained entire and to all appearances lusty, yet Ahab did not deem it entirely trustworthy. And, indeed, it seemed small matter for wonder that for all his pervading, mad recklessness, Ahab did at times give careful heed to the condition of that dead bone upon which he partly stood. For it had not been very long prior to the Pequod sailing from Nantucket that he had been found one night lying prone upon the ground and insensible. By some unknown and seemingly inexplicable, unimaginable casualty, his ivory limb having been so violently displaced that it had stakewise smitten and all but pierced his groin. Nor was it without extreme difficulty that the agonizing wound was entirely cured. Nor at the time had it failed to enter his monomaniac mind that all the anguish of that then present suffering was but the direct issue of a former woe. And he too plainly seemed to see that as the most poisonous reptile of the marsh perpetuates his kind as inevitably as the sweetest songster of the grove, so equally with every felicity and all miserable events do naturally beget their like. Yea, more than equally, thought Ahab, since both the ancestry and the posterity of grief go further than the ancestry and posterity of joy. For not to hint of this, 
that it is an inference from certain canonic teachings that while some natural enjoyments here shall have no children born to them for the other world, but, on the contrary, shall be followed by the joy childlessness of all hell's despair. Whereas some guilty mortal miseries shall still fertilely beget to themselves an eternally progressive progeny of griefs beyond the grave. Not at all to hint of this, there still seems an inequality in the deeper analysis of the thing. For, thought Ahab, while even the highest earthly felicities ever have a certain unsignifying pettiness lurking in them, but at random all heart woes, a mystic significance, and in some men an archangelic grandeur, so do their diligent tracings out not belie the obvious deduction. To trail the genealogies of these high mortal miseries carries us at last among the sourceless primogenitors of the gods, so that, in the face of all the glad, hay-making suns and soft-symboling ground-harvest moons, we must needs give in to this, that the gods themselves are not forever glad. The ineffaceable, sad birthmark in the brow of man is but the stamp of sorrow in the signers. Unwittingly here, a secret has been divulged, which perhaps might more properly, in set way, have been disclosed before. With many other particulars concerning Ahab, always had it remained a mystery to some why it was that for a certain period, both before and after the sailing of the Pequod, he had hidden himself away with such grand llama-like exclusiveness and for that one interval sought speechless refuge, as it were, among the marble senate of the dead. Captain Peleg's bruited reason for this thing appeared by no means adequate, though, indeed, as touching all Ahab's deeper part, every revelation partook more of significant darkness than of explanatory light. But in the end it all came out, this one matter did at least. That direful mishap was at the bottom of his temporary recluseness, and not only this, but to that ever-contracting, dropping circle ashore, who, for any reason, possessed the privilege of a less band approach to him, to that timid circle the above-hinted casualty, remaining as it did, moodily unaccounted for by Ahab, invested itself with terrors not entirely underived from the land of spirits and of whales, so that, through their zeal for him, they had all conspired, so far as in them say, to muffle up the knowledge of this thing from others, and hence it was that not till a considerable interval had elapsed did it transpire upon the Pequod's decks. But be all this as it may, let the unseen, ambiguous synod in the air or the vindictive princes and potentates of fire, have to do or not with earthly Ahab, yet in this present matter of his leg he took plain practical procedures. He called the carpenter. And when that functionary appeared before him, he bade him without delay set about making a new leg, and directed the mates to see him supplied with all the studs and joists of jaw ivory, sperm whale, which had thus far been accumulated on the voyage, 
in order that a careful selection of the stoutest, clearest-grained stuff might be secured. This done, the carpenter received orders to have the leg completed that night and to provide all the fittings for it, independent of those pertaining to the distrusted one in use. Moreover, the ship's forge was ordered to be hoisted out of its temporary idleness in the hold, and, to accelerate the affair, the blacksmith was commanded to proceed at once to the forging of whatever iron contrivances might be needed. Chapter 107 The Carpenter Seat thyself sultanically among the moons of Saturn, and take high abstracted man alone, and he seems a wonder, a grandeur, and a woe. But from the same point, take mankind in mass, and for the most part, they seem a mob of unnecessary duplicates, both contemporary and hereditary. But most humble though he was, and far from furnishing an example of the high, humane abstraction, the Pequod's carpenter was no duplicate. Hence, he now comes in person on this stage. Like all seagoing ship carpenters, and more especially those belonging to whaling vessels, he was, to a certain off-handed practical extent, alike experienced in numerous trades and callings collateral to his own. The carpenter's pursuit being the ancient and outbranching trunk of all those numerous handicrafts which more or less have to do with wood as an auxiliary material. But besides the application to him of the generic remark above, this carpenter of the Pequod was singularly efficient in those thousand nameless mechanical emergencies continually recurring in a large ship upon a three or four years voyage in uncivilized and far distant seas. For not to speak of his readiness in ordinary duties, repairing stove boats, sprung spars, reforming the shape of clumsy bladed oars, inserting bull's eyes in the deck, or new tree nails in the side planks, and other miscellaneous matters more directly pertaining to his special business, he was moreover unhesitatingly expert in all manner of conflicting aptitudes, both useful and capricious. The one grand stage where he enacted all his various parts so manifold was his vice bench, a long, rude, ponderous table furnished with several vices of different sizes and both of iron and of wood. At all times, except when whales were alongside, this bench was securely lashed athwart ships against the rear of the triworks. A belaying pin is found too large to be easily inserted into its hole. The carpenter claps it into one of his ever-ready vices and straightaway files it smaller. A lost land bird of strange plumage strays on board and is made a captive. Out of clean shaved rods of right whale bone and cross beams of sperm whale ivory, the carpenter makes a pagoda-looking cage for it. An oarsman sprains his wrist. The carpenter concocts a soothing lotion. Stubb longed for vermilion stars to be painted upon the blade of his every oar. Screwing each oar in his big vice of wood, the carpenter symmetrically supplies the constellation. A sailor takes a fancy to wear shark-bone earrings. 
The carpenter drills his ears. Another has the toothache. The carpenter out and clapping one hand upon his bench bids him be seated there. But the poor fellow unmanageably winces under the unconcluded operation. Whirling round the handle of his wooden vice, the carpenter signs him to clap his jaw in that, if he would have him draw the tooth. Thus, this carpenter was prepared at all points, and alike indifferent and without respect in all. Teeth he accounted bits of ivory, heads he deemed but top blocks, men themselves he lightly held for capstans. But while now upon so wide a field thus variously accomplished, and with such liveliness of expertness in him, too, all this would seem to argue some uncommon vivacity of intelligence, but not precisely so. For nothing was this man more remarkable than for a certain impersonal stolidity, as it were. Impersonal, I say, for it so shaded off into surrounding infinite of things that it seemed one with the general stolidity discernible in the whole visible world, which while pauselessly active in uncounted modes, still eternally holds its peace and ignores you, though you dig foundations for cathedrals. Yet was this half-horrible stolidity in him, involving too, as it appeared, an all-ramifying heartlessness. Yet was it oddly dashed at times with an odd, crutch-like, antediluvian, wheezing humorlessness, not unstreaked now and then with a certain grizzled wittiness, such as might have served to pass the time during the midnight watch on the bearded forecastle of Noah's Ark. Was it that this old carpenter had been a lifelong wanderer, whose much rolling to and fro not only had gathered no moss, but what is more, had rubbed off whatever small outward clingings might have originally pertained to him? He was a stripped abstract, an unfractioned integral, uncompromised as a newborn babe, living without premeditated reference to this world or the next. You might almost say that this strange uncompromisedness in him involved a sort of unintelligence, for in his numerous trades he did not seem to work so much by reason or by instinct, or simply because he had been tutored to it, or by any intermixture of all these, even or uneven, but merely by a kind of deaf and dumb spontaneous literal process. He was a pure manipulator. His brain, if he had ever had one, must have early oozed along into the muscles of his fingers. He was like one of those unreasoning but still highly useful multum in parvo, Sheffield contrivances, assuming the exterior, though a little swelled, of a common pocket knife, but containing not only blades of various sizes, but also screwdrivers, corkscrews, tweezers, awls, pens, rulers, nail filers, countersinkers. So if his superiors wanted to use the carpenter for a screwdriver, all they had to do was to open that part of him, and the screw was fast. Or, if for tweezers, take him up by the legs, and there they were. Yet as previously hinted, this omni-tooled, open-and-shut carpenter was, after all, no mere machine of an automaton. 
if he did not have a common soul in him, he had a subtle something that somehow anonymously did its duty. What that was, whether essence of quicksilver or a few drops of hartshorn, there is no telling. But there it was, and there it had abided for now some sixty years or more. And this it was, the same unaccountable, cunning life principle in him, this it was that kept him a great part of the time soliloquizing, but only like an unreasoning wheel, which also hummingly soliloquizes. Or rather, his body was a sentry box, and this soliloquizer on guard there, and talking all the time to keep himself awake. This has been Moby Dick. Please join us next time when Captain Ahab and the carpenter discuss making a leg.